Welcome to the Certified OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS test. Okay, so today we are going to talk about shoulder instability and labral repairs. Um, And before we get started, I do want to note that we are going to be taking a little time off around the holidays. So this will be our last episode for 2019. And we'll be back with a new episode on Monday, January 13th. So we're going to kind of wrap up with uh, this episode today. And then we'll have a couple more shoulder episodes that we want to release beginning in the new year. And then we'll just kind of keep moving through some different material. If there's something most specific that you have questions about or you want us to discuss on here, by all means, send us an email, but we'll just kind of keep working through some different material that we feel like is important. So um, we'll go ahead and kind of get started on this. So again, we're looking quite a bit at the current concepts um, book when it comes to this topic. And so if you're kind of following along a little bit, page 36 is where they start talking about shoulder instability and labral repairs. So we're going to kind of move through some of that. Um, So the section um, on shoulder instability and labral repairs is going to start, it's kind of like right on the end of that page 36, moving into page 37. Uh, So they note that a normal healthy shoulder has been described as the perfect compromise between mobility and stability. The shoulder complex allows a greater range of motion than any other joint in the human body. And because of this, there is a greater risk of instability compared to other joints in the body. So instability can occur as either a dislocation or a subluxation. And so the difference between those two, a dislocation occurs when there is a complete separation of the two articular surfaces. And since a certain amount of joint play is considered normal in some individuals, um, it's sometimes often uh, difficult to differentiate laxity from instability. Typically, if it's overall laxity or generalized ligamentous laxity, it'll be seen both bilaterally and it will be asymptomatic. Instability is defined as excessive symptomatic translation of the humeral head relative to the glenoid when stress is applied. A subluxation requires excessive translation of the humeral head on the glenoid in association with symptoms, and subluxation does not permit a complete separation of the joint surfaces. So the difference really between dislocation and subluxation is how far the humerus translates over the glenoid. So with the dislocation, you're going to see that complete separation compared to a subluxation where the humerus is not going to completely translate over the glenoid. Um, So a combination of several classification schemes can be viewed to cover most instances of instability. If you look at table two on page 37, you'll see the shoulder instability classification scheme. Uh, So what they're looking at here is they compare the frequency, etiology, volition, direction, and degree of instability. Um, So when it comes to frequency, they talk about acute, recurrent, or chronic, which is kind of that fixed fixed instability. Etiology is traumatic, atraumatic, microtrauma or overuse, congenital or neuromuscular. So consider, you know, herb palsy, cerebral palsy, and seizures. Volition would be voluntary or involuntary. Direction, anterior, posterior, inferior, or multidirectional. And degree would be that dislocation, subluxation, or micro or transient. 
So recent evidence has shown that there are significant differences in the um, glenohumeral joint between healthy control subjects and in both shoulders of patients diagnosed with anterior instability after a glenohumeral dislocation. Historically, anterior instability has been reported at significantly higher rates than posterior or multidirectional instability. However, more recent reports have shown that the rate of posterior and combined instability in an active population is far more common than previously reported. These injuries may make up more than 40% of operatively treated instability. For these patients with instability, even if surgical intervention is planned, the initial treatment of any shoulder instability should be non-operative. So this is where we come in into play here. The key areas to focus on include patient education, activity modification to decrease pain and inflammation, um, and rehabilitation aimed at improving rotator cuff and scapular muscle strength and endurance are extremely important to return important force couples, allowing for dynamic stabilization of the shoulder. We want to focus on dynamic stabilization and neuromuscular control of the rotator cuff and scapular muscles with these patients, which we've talked about in these previous episodes as well. Uh, Because the rotator cuff fibers blend into the glenohumeral ligaments in the capsule, the concept of increasing dynamic ligament tension during cuff activity also applies to those with unstable shoulders. Rotator cuff contractions may tension redundant portions of the capsule, which may be especially important in mid-ranges where the full effects of capsular redundancy are noticed. So once conservative treatment is exhausted, if the patient's symptoms are still persistent, then surgery would be the next option. And before you begin rehabilitation postoperatively, just like with any other surgery, you really need to know which surgical procedure was performed. Um, They know in the current concepts that there are greater than 250 different procedures that exist to help alleviate symptoms of instability. Uh, But the most common ones and the ones that they talk about in here are um, the arthroscopic capsular application, inferior capsular shift, anterior capsular labral repairs, and bank art repairs. So um, with these patients, the postoperative goal includes protecting the healing repaired tissue, preventing joint hypomobility, diminishing pain and inflammation, and regaining normal firing patterns for the rotator cuff and scapular muscles. Um, In terms of range of motion progression, you really want to be conservative with these patients. Obviously, historically, they've had too much range of motion, so we don't want to, you know, initially start trying to crank on these people to get their range of motion back. Um, protection of the capsular and ligament tissues that were repaired is of utmost importance in the early postoperative phase. Excessive stress to the, those tissues could cause the repair to fail. If you look at page 38 in the current concepts, they have a few tables listed with examples of range of motion progressions for three different surgeries. They have the um, inferior capsular shift or plication, the arthroscopic anterior capsule labral repair, and the bank art. So they kind of go through um, flexion, extension, internal rotation, and external rotation. And then they go by weeks 0 to 3, 4 to 6, 6 to 9, and 10 to 12. Um, And they have just guidelines there on where that range of motion should be, depending on uh, what type of surgery they had. So um, early range of motion exercises following surgery are intended to promote healing, enhance collagen organization, stimulate joint mechanoreceptors, and aid in decreasing the patient's pain through neuromuscular modulation. Early rehabilitation motion exercises and training should be done in the scapular plane, which we talked about a little bit last episode as well. Um, 
working in the scapular plane decreases the anterior capsule stress and it maximizes the bony congruency between the glenoid fossa and the humeral head. So that's really where we wanna be working uh, with these patients to begin with. So on page 39, they discuss four different types of surgeries. They kind of give a little background on those. Um, those surgeries include the capsular shift and plication, arthroscopic anterior capsular labral, labral repairs, bank art reconstruction, and anterior ladder jet. So I'm gonna kind of go through a little bit of what they talk about with these surgeries. Um, so the capsular, capsular shift and plication surgery used to be done openly, but now is done mostly arthroscopically. Uh, the goal during a capsular shift or plication procedure is to create a fold in the capsular tissue to remove unwanted capsular redundancy. Methods of fixation include suture or anchor fixation to the intact labrum or glenoid. So with the arthroscopic and anterior capsular labral repair, the redundancy is taken up through capsular plication or use of biodegradable sutures. If the capsule and labrum are both repaired, anchors are generally placed into the glenoid rim to repair the labral tear while sutures can create a tightening of the capsule back to the labrum. So the next one they talk about is the open bank art procedure, and that's considered the gold standard treatment for anterior instability. This surgery restores tension to the anterior inferior capsule and the inferior glenohumeral ligament complex. In this technique, sutures are passed through not only holes drilled through the glenoid, but also through capsular labral tissue to anatomically repair the labrum back to the glenoid rim. If sutures are not used, biodegradable anchors may be placed along the anterior inferior labral articular surface. In most cases with a bankart lesion, either bony or other labral lesion to the glenoid, a synovial resector or burr is used to abrade the glenoid rim to create a bleeding base to promote healing of the labrum to the bone after the repair. It's not always necessary to shift or tighten a capsule in an isolated bank art repair. Then the last one that they talk about is the anterior ladder jet. So the ladder jet has been used for many years to treat chronic shoulder instability when repair of the labrum in the shoulder is not possible. Indications include anterior bone loss due to chronic dislocations, a large engaging hill sacs lesion, or general instability-related loss of function. This type of patient may have already had an index procedure that did not completely restore stability. The procedure combines the stabilizing effects from the transfer or a coracoid, coracoid bone block anteriorly with a tenodesis effect of the attached tendons on the coracoid during transfer. This is most noted in the abduction external rotation position. Additionally, the open ladder jet includes a capsular repair component that is not present with the arthroscopic approach and provides additional stabilization to the procedure. Early rehabilitation following open ladder jet follows subscapularis and anterior stabilization precautions. Protected use of external rotation range of motion is followed to protect the repair for the first six weeks. Additionally, depending on the technique used, some degree of subscapularis involvement during the surgical procedure, thereby necessitating caution with early subscapularis strengthening in the first six weeks. Strengthening will begin with submaximal pain-free isometrics for external rotation initially and scapular stabilization. Internal rotation strengthening and typical rotator cuff and scapular exercise progressions are followed after the initial six-week healing phase. After the initial six weeks, gentle strengthening of the subscapularis can commence. 
At six to eight weeks, light isotonic exercises can begin. Sports-specific training should wait until about 16 weeks postoperatively. So those are the, the four surgeries that they kind of talk about. Amanda, I don't know what you most commonly see when it comes to these or if you've I'll seen. I'll be honest with you. I don't see a lot of um, like surgical management of these. I really see a mm-hmm. lot of conservative management of these. So yeah, I don't know if I can say one surgical approach more than another. Um, yeah. I, I think probably I've seen definitely a few like the ACLRs, but mm-hmm. That's, I mean, yeah, some bank carts too, but mm-hmm. most of them, I mean, it's usually a pretty end stage if they're getting to the point they're having surgical repair. I see a lot of younger folks with this and they really want them to completely exhaust surgical or non-surgical management before they get there. So I don't surgical with this. Yeah, I agree. I've definitely seen, I feel like I've seen some ACLRs and some bank carts, um, but I've seen one anterior ladder jet. And it was someone who was younger, had chronic dislocations over and over and over again. And it just got to the point where this was kind of the only option. Um, and, you know, it's a tough recovery. I mean, you can tell from what I just read that it's yeah. slow. I mean, he was um, definitely, his external rotation range of motion was so, so slow coming back. Um, yeah. and, and he really... Luckily, like he wasn't going back necessarily to like sports specific stuff, but I mean, he was a young guy in his thirties. He's active. He wants to get back to doing quite a bit of stuff and, um, you know, 16 weeks until you can really start doing any sort of training. It's tough. It can be a really frustrating rehab for Mm -hmm. those people. And I also think some of the surgical cases I have seen for these aren't necessarily immediately post-op. They have a history of having a surgical fixation Mm -hmm. for this. And then they're back in therapy because they're, it's failing. Mm-hmm. So, right. you know, I, I don't know that that's always the best route. Right. Well, and again, you kind of come back to that conversation too, of like a lot of times people who have some sort of instability in their shoulders, it, what's the reason why they have it? Did they have a dislocation? And then that led to like other, you know, issues and instability long-term, or do they have some sort of underlying condition and, they're going to keep having instability, you know, maybe they have that in different joints and, you know, just depending on what the root cause of the problem is. So, so yeah, I think these people definitely, you know, surgery is not always the best option or always kind of a surefire way to, to get them on the right track. So, um, so the next thing they talk about is just exercise progressions for patients with instability. Um, so that's dependent on the surgical procedure, but also patient tolerance. Um, in most cases, these patients will be in a sling early on, just like most of your other post-op surgery or shoulder patients. Um, early exercises are going to include passive and active assistive exercises to promote movement and more uniform scar orientation. And patients can typically take off their sling with, for their supervised exercises. Um, they can begin gentle submaximal isometrics and rhythmic stabilization exercises early to help prevent shoulder atrophy and promote dynamic stabilization. Around four to six weeks, the patient will be able to remove their sling and begin light tubing and isotonic exercises for the shoulder and arm. Around six to eight weeks, uh, soft tissue should be healed enough to add some higher level therapeutic exercises, including PNF exercises, neuromuscular co-contraction activities. Exercises such as this may also include prone scapular exercises or placing the extremity in a more functionally demanding position. 
Weeks 12 to 16 require higher level activities as the patient is nearing the time and where they're going to be uh, progressing towards that home program. More aggressive sport-specific activities can be used as a basis of treatment. Exercises may include plyometrics and eccentric exercises. Also, um, and we talked about this a little bit in some of the last episodes too, the importance of core stability should not be ignored or minimized. Uh, so they talk about a study Radwin and colleagues examined NCAA Division Three overhead athletes and found that core stability as measured by balance was found in athletes with shoulder dysfunction. Um, so greater shoulder dysfunction was correlated with greater balance and stability deficits. Um, underhand sports can be initiated about a month or two sooner than that of overhead athletes. And many of the rotator cuff and scapular exercises um, you know, we outline those in the impingement and non-operative rotator cuff management episodes. So, um, you know, if you haven't listened to that one yet, we talk a little bit about some of those different exercises that you can do. So those can be applied to these patients as well. Um, so the last thing that they talk about on page 40 is rehabilitation following a superior labrum anterior to posterior repair, or what we most commonly know as a slap repair. So superior labral lesions are common in athletes, especially overhead athletes. Uh, they discuss a little about the history of classification of the tears, um, but what I think is important to know is the four types that are noted in table six on page 40. When they talk about type one, two, three, and four there. Um, so they know that non-operative management may be effective in early type one lesions or small type two lesions. However, typically with type two, three, or four lesions, they're more than likely going to require surgery. So the surgical interventions uh, noted in table six include debridement for a type one lesion, repair of the biceps anchor attachment for a type two lesion, debridement of a buckle hand, bucket handle type um, tear for uh, type three. And then for type four, it's the same as type three, um, repair biceps anchor, biceps tenodesis, or tenotomy. And since labral, labral tears are extremely common, especially in overhead athletes, conservative treatment for type 1 or sometimes small type 2 lesions is indicated initially. Non-operative treatment should concentrate on strength and endurance of the rotator cuff and scapular stabilizers. Additionally, lack of posterior shoulder mobility has been thought to be a precursor to creating obligate superior and posterior translations of the humeral head, potentially creating or progressing superior labral tears. Uh, so another study they talk about in here, so Mansky et al. in a single blind randomized control trial found that stretching the posterior shoulder joint and mobilizing it was more beneficial than pure stretching alone in obtaining increases in shoulder internal rotation range of motion. Recent research has demonstrated the overall success of non-operative rehabilitation of slap lesions at a mean follow-up of three years. However, only 66% of overhead athletes were able to return to fully overhead activities following rehabilitation. This study shows improved functional ability and quality of life following non-operative rehabilitation of slap lesions, but the success is limited when it comes to overhead athletes. Uh, the rehabilitation used in this study focused on posterior shoulder stretching and posterior rotator cuff and scapular strengthening. So they talk a little bit too, just in general, um, about what to expect post-operatively after a slap tear. So most of these patients are going to be in their sling for up to four weeks. Um, there is some controversy about range of motion progression. So some 
clinicians feel that external rotation should be limited to zero degrees until four weeks post-op due to the risk of peel back. Um, others gradually increase external rotation 10 degrees per week after week one, not to exceed 30 degrees by week four. Um, additionally, external rotation early on in rehab should be performed with the shoulder in 45 degrees or less of abduction. Early active range of motion for the wrist and hand is of course allowed and encouraged, um, as well as the range of motion for the elbow, except for elbow flexion and forearm supination that would put tension on the bicep repair site. Um, at two weeks, submax scapular exercises can begin. Weeks five to six, um, range of glenohumeral range of motion is progressed in all directions, and you can begin active elbow flexion and forearm supination. Week seven to 12, the focus shifts to restoring muscular strength and balance of the cuff and scapular muscles. If range of motion is still progressing at this point, then there's no need to be forceful with stretching. Uh, but if it's not progressing and you're seeing this, these patients start to plateau with their range of motion, um, then you're going to want to apply some more aggressive stretching techniques. Uh, week 10, submaximal isometric exercises for elbow flexion can begin. At 12 weeks, full external rotation in a 90-90 position can be, and you can begin strengthening in that position. Um, if the patient has achieved full range of motion strength and is pain-free, then overhead activities can typically begin at four months post-op. So these are kind of the general guidelines that they go through um, for these patients, and that's all kind of on page 41. That doesn't necessarily mean, again, this doesn't replace specific surgeon recommendations or preferences. So you might work with a surgeon who wants their patients to move a little quicker than this or a little slower. And obviously, we always want to take into consideration the individual. So um, if there's anything that would allow them to progress faster or need them to progress slower, then you want to take that into consideration as well. So these are just general guidelines that they're kind of going over based off some of the studies that um, they looked at for for this uh, monograph for the current concept. So, um, Amanda, do you have anything specific to discuss when it comes to slap tears and repairs? No, nothing to add. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think they're pretty straightforward. I think all of this stuff when it comes to instability um, and labral tears is pretty straightforward. I think, like you mentioned, you know, these are people that you are going to see um, and they're going to try and, and exhaust conservative management with all these patients before they're looking at surgery. So, um, it's definitely something that you want to be comfortable treating and you want to be comfortable progressing them and then having a good understanding, depending on which procedure they may have, um, how you need to approach them post-op. So um, anything else that you want to add in general with any of this? No, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. I think if this is something you really don't treat a lot or really unfamiliar with, I, I really would encourage you to read the current concepts section on this. It's, it's outlined mm -hmm. very well there. Um, yeah, I, I think it's pretty straightforward for those of you that treat it a lot, but those of you that maybe don't work with an older population that maybe don't see this, it's definitely worth your time to read up on. Yeah, absolutely. So, so like I said, we're going to do a couple more episodes. We're definitely going to talk a little bit about um, AC joint injuries, and then we'll also do an episode about shoulder um, replacements. So we'll be covering that um, when we come back on January 13th. But um, in the meantime, please continue to send us emails if you have questions or if there's any specific topics 
Um, and even anything we've discussed, if you guys want us to go back and, and discuss any further, we're happy to do that. So just let us know what questions you have. And otherwise, we will talk to you all in 2020. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you.